Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. If you've looked at the bulletin, you can see that our 1030 service was on the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, Forgive Us Our Debts. And it is the same uh, general theme, uh, which is uh, that of this service today. Forgiveness is certainly a central tenet of the Christian religion. As a matter of fact, it's so central, it goes right to the very heart of the gospel, that God uh, in Christ forgives sinners for the sake of his son's uh, death and resurrection. Um, And yet, for all its centrality to Christianity and to the gospel, let us not Let us not pretend that forgiveness is easy. Forgiveness, forgiving someone that has hurt you, offended you, deeply harmed you, is certainly one of the most difficult things in the Christian life. So we need to hear what God has to say about forgiveness. So let's pray and ask that God would give us ears to hear and then read what he has to say to us and hear what he has to say to us this morning. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we talk very often, very frequently about forgiveness. But if we're honest, we find it very difficult. As the God who is the overflowing fountain of all good and the source of all grace, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We ask that you would do that because we ask it in the name of the one who forgives sinners by his shed blood, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's read Matthew chapter 18. We'll read beginning in verse 21 through to the end of the chapter. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. Just without going through all the translation here, let's just say $10 million, all right? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, or let's say a hundred dollars. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Four points to the sermon this morning. First of all, the proposal in Peter's question. Secondly, the parable and some of the details that are contained in it. Thirdly, the point which Jesus is making. And fourthly, a proviso, or if you will, a qualification or uh, such. Thomas Watson, a Puritan uh, preacher, said this, A man may as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. A man may as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Isn't that what Jesus says in verse 35? This is what my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the proposal that Peter brings to Jesus here? Well, look at the text. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, you should know, all right, that the rabbis who loved to debate various things, and still do, uh, debated this question endlessly. One rabbi, for example, said, if a brother sin against you once, forgive him. If he sins against you twice, forgive him. If he sins against you three times, forgive him. But if he sins against you a fourth time, don't forgive him. Jesus asks, uh, Peter asks Jesus, what about seven times? <laughs> Peter uh, thought he had attained the utmost height of charity in asking for seven times. Jesus' answer, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Of course, there's debate about whether or not it's 77 times or 70 times seven that misses the point completely. The point is you should your forgiveness should be unlimited. You should always forgive. There should never be an end or a limit or a terminus to your forgiveness of one who sins against you. Jesus explains this with the parable. Verse 23 and following. Now, Notice, if you will, in the sermon which introduced this series on parables, I said that the parables are about the kingdom, the parables are about grace, and the parables are about judgment. You see them all here. Look at the text just so uh, you see this. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Right. So we have a kingdom parable. <clears throat> we have grace. Look at verse 27. All right. Uh, the master forgave him the debt, grace. And yet, in the very same parable, we have judgment, verses 34 and 35. Deliver him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, and then the analogy with God will do the same to you. So, it's a parable of the kingdom. It's a parable about grace, and yet at the very same time, it's a parable about judgment. All right? Well, let's look. The first point in the parable, as Jesus tells it, is a law, not grace. And I'll have to express thanks to one particular author who pointed this out to me. 
as often is the case, our familiarity with certain passages of the Bible allows us to, or not allows, or sometimes uh, leads to overlooking things that are very obvious on the face of the text. And when you look at these opening words of the king who wished to settle accounts, this is an introduction of law, not grace. He's going to settle accounts. This king, if you will, is a bookkeeper, right, who keeps a record of debts and assets, right? And he's going to settle accounts, all right? <clears throat> like uh, 10 million sins, and of course we're talking about God here, right? So the sin uh, or the debt in the uh, text is 10,000 talents, but for you and me, this would be like 10,000 sins, 10 million sins, right? And God keeps a record. We talked in the previous service that when Jesus tells us to preach the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts as a euphemism or as another term for sins. Why is that? Because we owe God obedience. We owe him perfect obedience. And when we sin, when we do what God forbids, or we fail to do what God requires, we are put in the position of owing God or being in debt to God. And the analogy here is that your sin and my sin is like 10 million sins, 10 million debts that we owe to God. Think, for example, if you will, just to highlight this and, and press the point home on your consciences, all right, I won't leave it there, but to press the point home on your consciences, just think of the two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you love God with all your, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? I dare say, I hope no one says yes. Because I don't, and I know you don't. Do you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Fail again, right? So just when it comes to the two great commandments, our grade is F. We're in debt and big trouble. But of course, then we could add to those passive sins as well, right? Sins like pride, self-righteousness, hypocrisy, lust, hatred, jealousy, envy, covetousness, lying. And of course, if that wasn't enough to convince you that you're in debt, to a God who requires perfect obedience. Let's just use a broad scenario. We sin, we say, in thought, word, and deed every day. Well, let's just say there's one in each of those categories. Let's just say you sin once in thought, once in word, once in deed, every day. That's three sins every day. For a year, that's a thousand sins. Average life expectancy, 70 to 80. 70 to 80,000 sins in one lifetime. You and I are in debt to God. Do you want God to settle your debt? The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins it must die. 
unless anybody deceived themselves into thinking that what I have articulated is nowhere near as bad as you think of yourself. James says, if we keep all the commands and fail in just one, then we're guilty of breaking them all. Debtors to God. Do you want God to be a bookkeeper? Do you want God to settle the account with the wages of sin? You see, you and I, like the servant here in the parable, are helpless and hopeless on our own. Helpless and hopeless in due of just retribution. If God is a bookkeeper who keeps accounts and is going to settle accounts, then you and I are in big trouble. Now, of course, that's not where the parable ends. Okay, I said I wouldn't leave you there, but I do want to press home that point, lest anyone be deceived. This is what we're talking about. Excuse me, this is what Jesus is talking about. And it doesn't end there because it goes on in verses 26 and 27. Read it with me. The servant fell on his knees imploring, have have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This loan shark of a king who's ready to call in his friends from Brooklyn to settle the debt, all of a sudden becomes a marshmallow mush. A big softy. And forgives the debt. The servant does nothing more than ask for grace to get grace. And the king cancels the debt wipes it out, forgets it ever existed. And why? Well, you can read the text exhaustively over and over and over again. We never know why. For reasons internal only to himself. Does he do that? In effect, he dies to being a bookkeeper. And he goes out of debt. He goes out of the debt collecting business. I want you to note the cost of $10 million is absorbed by the king. In other words, he absorbs the cost of settling the debt by himself. And there's always a cost to that. The cost didn't go away, did it? No, the king eats it, we would say, in our colloquial language. He swallows it himself. He absorbs the cost in himself. 
and he dies to being a bookkeeper. Look at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred bucks and seizing him began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, now, now what's the issue here? It may seem obvious, but it's not that obvious. The servant doesn't perceive the king's death to being a bookkeeper. And he doesn't die to him being a bookkeeper. He doesn't die to his old life. But he goes on as a bookkeeper. He's going to have his debt settled, even though the king has absolved his own debts. He misses the whole new life he might have lived out of death. The author who helped me see this, I think explains it much better than I could, and I'd like to read it to you. He says, and so do we. When we refuse death, Jesus has not only set Peter up in this passage, he set you up as well. He's been saving, saying with utter clarity that he, the Messiah, is going to solve the world's problems by dying. His answer to our sins, your sin, will be the oblivion of a death on the cross. His response to your loss of control over your destiny will be to lose everything himself. And what he tells you in this parable, therefore, is that unless you too are willing to see your own death as the one thing necessary to your salvation, unless you can, unlike this unforgiving servant, die to the Jim Crack account by which we have justified our lives, you'll never be able to enjoy the resurrection, even though Jesus hands it to you on a silver platter. If you cannot face the price he has paid to free you, you might as well never have been freed at all. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me? And shall you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In other words, this author goes on and says, <clears throat> excuse me, the king sets before the servant the two scenes he had just been through. And he rubs the salt of them into the wound of the servant's refusal to die. In each, there was a creditor with lawful rights. In each, a plea for patience from the debtor and a promise to repay. But then the king drives home the one crucial difference. I died for you, for Christ's sake. He says, but you were so busy making plans for your stupid life, you never even noticed and therefore the king pronounces judgment on him because the servant is chosen a losing life instead of a gracious death. The king condemns him to just that life 
he delivers him to the torturers to be tormented until he pays the debt, which means obviously for his whole life, until death itself does for him what he refused to do on his own. The parable of grace ends in judgment. What's the point? The point is verse 35. Look at the text. So also also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Grace to you must be grace through you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom some of you know as a famous preacher in Great Britain, gone to be with the Lord, said this, I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody, anything. A Christian is someone who goes from forgiven to forgiving. As difficult as that might be. You see, you and I, if you're a Christian, if God has settled accounts with you by absorbing the cost of that debt, the wages of sin is death, by dying to being a bookkeeper, by dying in the person of his son for your sins, then you must always be ready and willing to forgive. There must always be an inclination in the heart of a Christian to forgive. Why? Because Thomas Watson is right. Echoing Jesus. A man may as well go to hell for not forgiving as for not believing. Which brings us to the proviso. One of the most important aspects of being a pastor, and not just a preacher, is that you know the sheep, that you know your people, so that when you stand in the pulpit, there's a connection between the people whom you know and what is being said. Now, I say that to preface these comments. I know that there are many in this congregation who have been severely harmed, injured, hurt, deeply, irrevocably, and scars from those injuries remain to this very day over the course of many years, deeply embedded in your heart and soul. And I want you to know I'm not 
indifferent to that. Aware of that, this proviso is very important. Look with me at Luke chapter 17 and verse 4. Luke chapter 17 and verse 4. I am not, as a preacher, standing here and saying to you that no matter whatever happened to you, whenever it was, you must always forgive no matter what. I am not saying that. Because that is not the teaching of the Bible. Look at Luke 17, verse 4. Jesus said to his disciple, temptations to sin, verse 1, are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And look at this. If he repents, forgive him. There's the proviso. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. There must always be an inclination to forgive. There must always be a ready willingness to forgive for one who has been forgiven. But forgiveness is always conditional. The willingness to forgive is unconditional. But the forgiveness is always conditional. God does not willy-nilly forgive everybody who is a sinner. No, the message of Jesus when he came as an itinerant preacher of the kingdom of God said, repent and believe. And unless and until someone turns from sin to God, and that change occurs, that person does not receive the forgiveness of God. And so also analogously, or by way of comparison, Jesus says, or let me put it in the words of Paul in Ephesians, he says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. We are to be imitators of God. Well, how does God forgive? God forgives those who repent. And so Jesus in Luke says, yeah, you should be ready and willing to forgive if he repents. So the proviso is, for anyone thinking of certain individuals or circumstances, is simply have they repented. And if they have not, you're under no obligation to forgive. Forgiveness in the Bible is conditional. It's a condition God sets forth, and you were to forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's a condition which you have as well. Now, I would like to read an account of someone who actually encountered someone who caused considerable injury to him. The man spoken of as a murderer. The murderer murdered this preacher's 
father while robbing his house and so physically assaulted his mother, both of whom were in advanced years, that she was permanently hospitalized for the rest of her life. That's a serious injury, right? Now, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm the only child of a single mother, but if somebody had done that to my mother... I want, want to get my friends from Brooklyn to come. Let me read this to you. This is a professor in a theological seminary in Australia and a preacher. He was on a preaching series around the world, preaching on the Lord's Prayer. And he told this story. He was looking forward on his way from Australia to America to meet his parents in Barrydale near Swellendam in South Africa. I asked Skulk if he knew where Swellendam was. Before he was there, his father was robbed and left for dead and his mother was permanently hospitalized. Upon, I'm just going to read it as he writes it, upon my arrival in South Africa I headed for Swellendam I was amazed the police had apprehended a young man in connection with the death of my father, and that young man had signed a statement confessing. I also learned that my father, before dying, had given a description to the police of the young man, which description is altogether in harmony with the appearance of the accused, and that the latter, having been caught, was being held in jail, precisely in Swellendam, awaiting preliminary trial just one week after my own arrival there. I immediately contacted the jail, requesting permission to come and speak to the accused, The police warmly supported my request, but informed me the accused had the right to refuse to see me. I went to the jail, where I was told to surrender my stuff I had been carrying. I was escorted to a room where the armed policemen and their officer were doing clerical work. One minute later, the accused was brought through that door into the room and stood there in front of me. He was a strongly built, medium-sized man, answering exactly to this description given by my father to the police. He stood there just looking down at the ground. I silently praised to God, prayed to God for guidance as to what to, ne- to do next. Then I got up from my chair. I addressed him politely by his full name. I greeted him with a handshake, thanked him sincerely for granting me the interview, and requesting him to sit down before I, I again did so. I said, sir, are you getting enough to eat here? He replied, yes, thank you. I said, have you peace of mind here? He replied, sorry, I'm very unhappy. I have been praying to God in my cell for the last three nights. But it's as if my prayers bounce back off the ceiling and don't get through. I said, sir, I am the only child of the old man who was left for dead behind the front door of his house in Barrydale on the 10th of July, whom you were accused of having assaulted. I've been looking forward to spending a week with him, but as you can see, this is now impossible. The young man nodded, looked down, and said nothing. I then continued, Sir, my father was not a Christian many years ago. But there came a time in his life when he turned from his sin and received Jesus as his Lord and Savior. That is why he is now in heaven and waiting for me to join him. I assure you, sir, that if you make your peace with God, whether you die right now of a heart attack or are to be put to death for murder, or die naturally later on, you too will go to heaven. 
I also assure you that my father, whom you are accused of having murdered, will then be the first person to welcome you. However, sir, if you do not repent, and if you die in your sins, I assure you that you will spend eternity in hellfire and damnation forever. Sir, whether you repent and become a Christian or you harden yourself and die in your sins, know for sure that if found guilty by the court, I would want you to receive the maximum penalty. I will plead no leniency whatsoever for you, even if you become a Christian, but I am offering you everlasting life in heaven after you die, if you will repent and come to Jesus. Sir, he went on, three men died on a little hill called Calvary. Two were guilty robbers, but the one in the middle of the Lord Jesus was innocent. Robbers, as you know, include those who go around beating up old people and leaving them for dead after stealing from them. Both of those robbers jeered at the innocent Jesus crucified between them. But then one of the robbers repented, turned to the other and said, we are being condemned justly. For we are receiving the punishment due for our deeds, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing amiss. Then the penitent robber said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Sir, do you not see yourself as one of those two robbers next to Jesus on Calvary? Will you die in your sins and go to hell like the impenitent robber? Or will you, like the other robber, repent of your sins, receive Jesus as your Lord, and be assured by him that you will go to heaven when you die? Sir, if you wish, I will leave this jail right now. But if you prefer, I would be privileged to show you right now how you too can become a Christian. Which is it to be? The man tried to look me in the eye and he said, Sir, would you please show me how to become a Christian? I then realized that the four policemen in the room had all put down their pens, had stopped working, and were straining their ears, listening to us. So I said, Officer, could you kindly get us a Bible? The officer went galloping out of the room, immediately returned with the Bible and put it on my lap with great respect. I opened it at John 3.16 and asked, Sir, if he could read. And when he so indicated, I handed him the Bible and asked him to read it. Loudly and clearly, he read it out. And then said, I too, I am too big a sinner. But I replied, it says here, whosoever. And that includes you too, if and when you put your trust in Jesus. The atmosphere was electric. All in that room felt the awesome presence of God, the Holy Spirit. And the silence was terrifying. And then I said, sir, will you come to Jesus? He replied, I will. So two wicked, hell-deserving sinners, myself and my father's murderer, went down on their knees in that jail together. I put my arm around his shoulder and prayed first. 
I thanked God for our meeting, reconfessed all my own fresh sins to the Lord, and then asked him to have mercy on this man for Christ's sake. And then the man prayed. He said, Lord, I'm a miserable sinner. Please don't let Satan destroy me. I'm sorry for all my sins. Forgive me for the sake of Jesus, who died for people like me. We then got off our knees. I assured him, sir, if you really meant that, you are now my brother. In that case, here is my right hand of fellowship. I will help you in any way I can. Here is my address in Australia. Australia, if you write to me, I promise to reply to every letter you may write for the rest of my life. When is your trial? He told him the trial. He promised to pray for him on that day of the trial and then shook his hand and left the jail to the astonishment of both the grateful police and the bewildered convicts there. He goes on with some further details. And he says, after returning to Australia, I use this as an illustration while preaching on the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive men their debts as we forget our debtors. He concludes with comments to you, with which I conclude. My fellow sinner, how stands it with your soul? Are you certain you are right with God for time and eternity? For Jesus assures us, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you have the certainty that all your sins have been forgiven for Christ's sake? If not, settle with Jesus now. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for Jesus' forthright, frank, truth-telling. We ask that you would all, you would help us all to forgive others' debts, even as you have forgiven us. Father, we are weak, needy. We are hurt. We ask that you would grant repentance to those who committed injustices, injuries, harm. We ask that you would bring them to get straight with Jesus as well, lest they also pay for all eternity the penalty for those sins and all other sins. We ask it in the name of him who sacrificed himself for sinners, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.